the temperatures are getting hotter outside and as soon as the heat starts going away it's going to start getting cold outside no one, you don't say one thing you're going to have to get taken care of is you're going to have to have a house with a regulated temperature throughout all those seasons whenever it's hot you want the inside to be cool whenever it's cool you want the inside to be warm and so the person to get in touch with is nat anderson you can call nat anderson today at 1-870-926-8700 and i can personally attest nat anderson has not only put in a high efficiency heater in my home but has put in a brand new air unit in my home and our house is absolutely comfortable Call him today, Anderson Heat and Air, 870-926-8700. You can also find him on Facebook at Anderson Heat and Air of NEA. And hopefully you'll find him pulling up to your driveway the next time you have a problem fixing and everything because Nat Anderson is a professional. Dr. April Jones, you know it, I know it, Brian knows it. We can't do it without you, but I wouldn't want to do it without her, Brian. She has been a huge part of the Crucial Conversation from day one. And you know what she's going to do for you guys this episode? We're giving you an extra 10% off. So it's not just 10% no more. It's 20% off. You put in promo code CRUCIAL2020 and get 20% off anything in her store. They don't just have books, but they also have apparel. They have journals. They have it all, Brian. Go to thedriftedrum.com backslash the Crucial Conversation and get 20% off your entire order by putting in promo code CRUCIAL2020. Pastors, deacon, board members, and you know what? Business owners. People are driving by your business or church all hours of the day and night, and you need a sign that's going to grab their attention. And there's nothing better than an efficient LED sign that's going to capture a potential client or customer or congregation member's attention, like a sign from Anderson LED Signs. Anderson LED Signs is based in Jonesboro, Arkansas, but they travel all over, Tony. All over. They've done business for your father in Illinois. We know of businesses in Jonesboro they've done. But again, like I said, it's not just Arkansas. It's not just Illinois. Wherever you are just about, they can put a sign in. So there's no harm in calling and trying to find out whether or not they can come to you and what kind of deal they can make with you. Call today at 1-870-275-1111. We've known Greg Anderson for a while. We know, for a matter of fact, that this new presenting sponsor is going to take care of you. He was super excited to get on board for season two, and what a better way to kick off this brand new one-year anniversary episode than with new sponsors. Guys, check out Anderson LED Signs at 870-275-1111. Another new sponsor we have this month is the author, Sheila Texter, with a brand new book that just came out, Life After the Mistake. Brian, there is a myth out there that once you're a Christian, everything's perfect. Well, this book is here to tell you that's not true. If you've fallen just short of being perfect as a Christian, there's others out there just like you. And she knows from experience, not just because she's lived it, but because she's experienced it in ministry. They pastor a church in Blyville, Arkansas. These are some credible people, and specifically this author is going to minister to you in this brand new, hot off the presses book that you can, it is available right now. Right now. Just now came out. And you can find it on Amazon.com. Search for Life After the Mistake. Or you can connect with her on Facebook, Brian, and she said that she would give you a signed copy of the book for the same price. Guys, go check out Life After the Mistake by Sheila Texter.
Hey guys, this is Brian. And I'm Tony. And you're listening to the Crucial Conversation Podcast. Welcome on to the podcast today, a guest of two of my good friends, Spencer and Allison Kane. I say Allison is from Illinois, even though she's not, and Spencer's from Jonesboro. Nevertheless, they're here with us with Grandma Sue, Allison's grandma. So we've already discussed that we're going to call you Sue, and that's not out of disrespect. It's because I can't pronounce your last name. But we're going to, you got an incredible testimony. And when Spencer and Allison emailed me and said, hey, my grandma's coming to town, and they told me a little bit about your story, I was absolutely thrilled to get you on. And they're here with us, too. Yeah, they are here this, with us. This is, I mean, this is the first time we've ever done a podcast with an audience. Yes. Well, the second time. What was the, what was the first? The first time when Farrah was here. Your wife, my wife. Um, was Meredith in there? Yeah. And um, Shannon was in there with us as well. No, Shannon wasn't. She went to go eat with us. That's right. That's right. Well, nevertheless. It's not, it's not essential. No, it's not. It's not. But Grandma Sue, thank you so much for coming in and talking with us. I know you're a little bit out of your element, but your testimony will absolutely bless thousands that listen. So let's go back a long time ago. I'm saying that in respect. <laughs> and tell us a little bit about your growing up. And let's get started in your story. All right. Thank you so very much for letting me do this. Anytime I can share my testimony, I just love it. Um, well, let's start from the very beginning. I uh, was born to an 18-year-old mother and a 36-year-old father. Um, at six months old, they were driving, and um, she was my mother was driving a truck, and she overturned it after a argument with my father. And the truck over, rolled over on her and crushed her from her waist down. Uh, however, she did die. And um, there was an inquest on her death because there was a head injury, and they couldn't figure out how did that happen. Well, later on, my father was drunk, and he was crying to my uncle, and he told him that he picked up a rock and he crushed her head. And uh, he killed her because he thought he was going to be in trouble for, her. number one, her driving the truck. He was It was a jewel tea truck. And number two, because they were arguing, and that caused the accident. So that was a terrible thing right from the very beginning. I lived with my grandmother, my father's mother, until I was three years old. And um, the inquest actually showed that they couldn't prove anything. Uh, about the head injury, so he never got charged or anything, and he was hurt severely. But uh, I did live with my grandmother until I was three years old. At three years old, my father married a, a lady with a five-year-old daughter, and um, she was uh, the best thing that ever happened to me. She uh, became my sister, and um, of course, I went to live with my father and my grand, my mother, my stepmother. And she, and she was very, very good to me up until I turned about 
Oh, so I started school. When I started school, something happened. I don't know what happened, but it just changed completely. She became ugly. She became mean. She became uh, hurtful. She would tell me that I was no good for nothing and would never amount to nothing, and uh, no man would ever have me because I couldn't do anything right. Well, at five years old or six, who cares? I mean, I, I didn't, didn't think that bothered me at all, but later on in the story, you'll find out that probably had some kind of effect on me somewhere down the line. Uh, at the, I loved my father. I just loved him to death. Uh, and when I walked through the door, my stepmother was different. She was nice. She was sweet. She didn't tell me I was bad, and she didn't hit me with a belt, and she was just a different person completely. And then, um, so I worshipped him. When he came in the door, I was so glad to see my daddy, and I would sit on his lap, and I would, he would hug me, and it was just a, a good thing. And I didn't know I was adopted. I didn't know she wasn't my real mother. I didn't know any of that because I was only three years old. I didn't remember any of that. I just figured she was my mom and Patty was my sister and, um, you know, I just figured that was the way family was. At the age of seven, I'm out in my yard uh, playing with all the kids in the neighborhood and my dad says, uh, Sue, come in the house. I want you to do me a favor. And I'm, you know, get out of the tree because I was a big tomboy and I come in the house and my dad took me to his bedroom, and he had no clothes on, and he had pictures all over the place. There were magazines all over the place, and um, he said, I want you to do Daddy a favor. Take your clothes off, and um, I was devastated. I was scared to death. What in the world? What you know? What's going on here? And then my father proceeded to sexually molest me and do things that no little girl should ever have to deal with or ever see or do or be asked to do. No grown-up woman should ever have to do it unless she's in love with someone. But anyhow, after that, I was crying. and My mother worked at uh, American Can. She worked during the days, and he worked during the nights for the railroad. They had a taxi service. They were on the PTA. They We made A's and B's. We were great students in school. We had good grades. They were very involved in the neighborhood. Um, neighbors thought we were the best family on earth, I guess, because we were very up in the neighborhood. But my dad, after I he got through doing that, he took me to the bathroom and put me in the tub, and he told me, he said, now, this is something special between mom, dads and daughters, and we don't tell anybody about our secret. This is our secret, because if you tell anybody, I'll tell them that you're lying and that you're a very bad girl, and nobody will believe you. And I was just petrified. I was shaking. He said, now you need to straighten up and stop all this nonsense. He said, there's nothing wrong. This is something that daddies and daughters do. And you're going to be all right. And you don't tell nobody now because you know what? If daddy gets arrested, that would be really bad. Well, I never told nobody. But my little sister, my older sister, Patty, she knew that something had happened. And she got me aside after a couple of days, and she said, did Daddy hurt you? And I said, yes. And she said, he did it to me, too. We'll have to stay together and hope that this doesn't happen again. And um, so we went on. We went on, and things kept happening.
things happened here, things happened there. And um, a couple years later, my mom and dad came home and said, how would you guys like to have some more sisters? And we thought, oh, right, baby sisters and a, and a big sister. And they had just gone to my, uh, my uh, uncle's house and on my mother's side, and they had, there was a family living upstairs that the parents had not been there for a couple of days, and they, they said, there's a big problem upstairs. You need to go check and see what's going on. They went upstairs, and they found eight children in squander. I mean, they were dirty. They were uh, two babies that were eight months old, and they both were sick, and they both had clabbered milk in their bottles, and they both had uh, bad diapers on, and uh, the other kids were hungry and thin, and no mother or no father around, and they hadn't been there for days. So, of course, my uh, stepmother hopped to it, and she uh, called the state of Illinois, took the babies to the hospital. They both had pneumonia. She fell in love with the twins, and she, the older daughter, who was 12, she brought them... Um, she went to the state of Illinois, and she said, we'll take the two babies, and we'll take the older sister, and we'll adopt them. And lo and behold, they did. And so we went from a family of two girls to a family of five girls. Well, that was okay for a while, but uh, I had diaper duty. I didn't like that at all. <laughs> I... Uh, hated. I had to wash all the dirty diapers out, and I would take them and I would roll them up and I would stuff them in this crack up in the ceiling in the basement. And pretty soon, my dad walked under it one day. My mom, my stepmom walked under. She says, "I think a, a rat has died here." And my dad got up there and he started pulling out dirty diapers full of poop. And I had to wash those diapers anyhow. Well, I, I, I didn't even like being on diaper duty as a father. Oh my gosh, at nine years old? Uh, no way, that was just the pits. At 27, 28, 29, I, I didn't like being on diaper duty. How about you, Brian? Don't know anything about it yet. <laughs> well, I didn't like it. Well, I got the beating of my life and I had to wash those diapers out anyhow. I never did that again. I washed them diapers out the minute they came off the little butts. So that was just one thing I did. But, um, wasn't long. My dad kind of ignored Patty and I, and he started with the older daughter. She was 12. And we would watch him come down in the basement and carry her, all five of us girls, uh, slept in the basement. And we would watch him come down and carry her upstairs while my mom worked. I think she was working midnights then, and dad was working during the day. Anyhow, it was a long, drawn-out affair with him and her. Uh, my mom found out about it, and uh, neighbors found out about it somehow. I don't know how they found out. Well, he would take her out dancing at night and take her to out late at night, and I think a neighbor saw him, and they reported him to DCFS. The girl was only 12, and she was, uh, he just moved in on her. So one day, uh, one evening, my mother pa started packing all of our clothes into a into a station wagon and our collie dog. And when my dad came home from the railroad at midnight, she told him, "You've got five minutes. Get in the bank, get in the car, or else you stay here. The state of Illinois is coming tomorrow morning to take the kids because the state of Illinois had found out about the abuse, all the sex stuff going on." So he ran in the house, he got a few things, and he came out in the car, and he put those things in there. 
And from that point on, it was like unbelievable, like we had been cursed with a curse. Uh, we took off, them screaming and yelling at each other in the front seat at midnight, the dog, five kids in the back, a few things in a trunk, and then we went to Alabama. And um, they found a house to rent there, and um, we weren't there very long, and my mom and dad got a job managing a, a little cafe, and it was about 30 minutes away from the house that we rented. And... Um, a tornado came through there one night and a bad storm, and they heard all the bad reports about the weather, and so they took all of us kids to that other little town where the restaurant was, and we stayed in that back little room, and they got a call about 2 o'clock in the morning saying, is there anybody in your house because it's on fire? And our house burnt down with everything we owned to the ground, nothing but ashes left, and... All we had was the clothes on our back. There, I don't know, there wasn't no Red Cross, no, nobody that came to our, our help. We had absolutely nothing but the clothes on our back. And we were just dirt poor, just really poor. A couple of weeks after that, my sisters ran away and got married. They were uh, 13. No, they weren't. They were, I guess, well, yeah, Patty was 13 and Barbara was 15. And they ran away with a couple of country boys in Alabama, and they got married and uh, left me there with the two twins. I begged them to take me with me with them, but they wouldn't. They said I had to stay there and take care of the girls. So you did have a, a relationship with your sisters then? Oh, absolutely. Are, are they what kind of kept kept you sane, I guess? We kept, yeah, that we, Patty especially, she was uh, just like a, big mom to me. She tried to, you know, just always help me. And uh, The girls I absolutely love, the twins. I just absolutely love taking care of them babies. Do you still have a relationship with them today? Absolutely. There's a story to that, too. I can't wait to get to it. <laughs> yeah. I didn't mean to cut you off. Go ahead. No, no, that's all right. Um, uh, so we, somebody pulled a trailer in behind the cafe that had been turned over in the tornado that night. It had all the windows busted out, food everywhere, all over the walls. They squirted it down. They boarded up the windows. They ran an electric cord out to the trailer, and that's where we slept uh, for about four months. And then the weather turned bad, and it became November and December, and uh, it was very cold, and they closed down the cafe. The cafe just wasn't making any money at all. And so they closed down the cafe. So then we went from there to a car. And then we lived in a car. And I don't know how long we lived in a car. I was nine years old. And I don't remember. Or I was a little bit older than that. I was about 10. Was your mom with you? The stepmom stayed with him. And she knew what he did. But she stayed with him. And, um, yeah, we lived in a car. And we uh, they went to stores that had been burnt during the... Um, during the tornadoes and the storms, a store had burnt down, and they would get canned foods that had been burned, and they would get crackers that had been burned, and I mean, just whatever they could find in there that was eatable, and they brought it to the car, and that's what we ate. They, my dad would open it up with his pocket knife, and we would eat that. For, that's how we survived, and go to uh, gas stations and wash. And I don't know how long that lasted, but it felt like an eternity. Uh, then a man offered a house for us to live in. It had electric. It had heat. It was almost Christmas. 
And then um, a family in a Baptist church adopted our family. I went to school at that time. I, I had the most awfulest experience at this school in my whole life. I had only clothes that were in bags. We had no washer, no dryer, no iron, no nothing to make it look better, nothing to make it look my size. They were too big for me, and I would get on that bus with these terrible clothes, and I would go to school with, We had. Uh, they were given flour, onions, um, and lard, and I don't know what, they, somebody gave us a bunch of that. And so every day my mother would make biscuits, and then she would put a slice of onion on a biscuit, wrap it up in the newspaper, and that's what I took to lunch for school every day. And I would sit by myself, and I thought about it later on when I grew up, it's probably the onions. <laughs> I probably had onion breath. <laughs> but nobody was so close to me, and they called me scab. Okay, there's the scab. And it was the most awful situation. I started having nosebleeds. Uh, because I was malnutritioned, and they would have to stuff them with cotton and take me to the hospital, and it was they said it was malnutrition. Um, but a Baptist church adopted our family that December, and I will never forget it all the days of my life because it made a difference in my life. I, they adopted our family, and on Christmas Eve they came to our house with these this beautiful lady. She had a beautiful coat on and a beautiful dress, a beautiful hairstyle. I mean, I noticed all this. She just looked like an angel when she walked through the door. And she had to stack a presence like this. And she said, I'm from the Baptist Church, and we adopted your family this year. Can we come in? And there was a whole bunch of them. They came in, and they had a stack of presents for each one of us. And then they had baskets of food. There was oranges and bananas, and there was apples, and there was a ham, and there was turkey, and there was sweet potatoes, and there was pumpkin to make pumpkin pie, and all the goodies that every anybody would ever dream of for a, a Christmas dinner, and all kinds of stuff in those baskets. It was just heavenly. And then... We got to open our presents, and my presents, I had a black and white patent leather belt around it, dress, with a can-can underneath. And then I had panties that had the days of the week. <laughs> I didn't have panties that fit, and that was very important to me. It made it such an impression of the days of the week on them, you know, and then socks and shoes that fit, and a coat and a hat. And pants and shirts and a nightgown and a, and a house coat and house slippers. I mean, anything a little girl would ever dream of. And a whole box full of a brush, a comb, a toothbrush, toothpaste, cologne, all kinds of stuff. I was only 10 and a half or 11 years old, but I'll never forget it all the days of my life. And my little sisters got the same. And my mother and father got clothes, and they got good things. And, oh, I will never forget the way the house smelled the next morning. It was radiant with ham cooking and the food baking in the kitchen and the food being prepared for Christmas dinner. And for the very first time in my life, I saw my family hold hands and thank God for that dinner that day and praise God for that dinner that day. And just it was just absolutely beautiful. But life went on. 
got down the road, they moved to Nashville, Tennessee. They had a restaurant down in a tavern, actually. They operated a tavern. We lived upstairs above the tavern. I was 11 years old now, and I was strictly go to school, come home, take care of the kids. Go to school, come home, take care of the kids. I was very athletic. I did high jumping. I did tumbling. I was asked to go to a tumbling thing that was going to be on TV. Our, our uh, team got to selected to go on TV. And I asked my dad and mom, I said, please let me go. It's, it's going to be on TV. And our team made it. Our team made it, you know. And they said, absolutely not. You've got to come home and take care of the kids. And that was the beginning of my rebellion. I took $3 off of my dad's desk, and I didn't come home that day. I signed my dad's name and my mom's name to a paper, and I went to that tumbling thing where they, we were on TV. Our tumbling team was on TV. And I got home. He was pacing the floor. He was so mad. And he belted me big time. And I that's, I, that's the first banking I could ever remember getting from my dad. My dad wasn't abusive physically like that, but he was abusive in other ways. But um, at that point, something hit me. I, I don't know. I started sitting out on the porch after the kids went to bed. I'd put the kids to bed. And these guys used to come that lived upstairs, and they were alcoholics drunks in their 20s and they started showing me attention and um, I was uh, promiscuous I was looking for love and I was looking for it in the wrong places and the next night another young man would come up and show me attention and I was getting really bad about doing things I shouldn't do and not even thinking about being bad and um so I started not getting home when my mom and dad got there, and they started getting very upset and looking for me. And one night I didn't come home because I was with a man, and I was my dad was out pacing the sidewalk with a knife, and I was afraid to come home. So I hid. I hid, and uh, the next morning when I came in, my mom and dad were sitting there, and they said, we've made a decision. Each, they said, we're getting a divorce, and you're going to an orphanage. And so I, um, they called my grandmother, who had raised me until I was three. She lived in Belleville, Illinois. And they said, we're getting a divorce. We've got an orphanage here that will take all three kids, but if you'll get here by tomorrow morning, we will let you have Sue, and you can raise her. How old were you at this point? Eleven and a half. I was almost twelve. And um, they were there the next morning. My uncle and my grandmother, who I had not seen since I was about five years old, were there the next morning to get me and take me to Belleville. And the girls were put in an orphanage, a Catholic orphanage. And my mom and dad got a divorce, and they went their ways. And we never heard from them for years. I mean, it was years. We just It was like we were dropped and forgotten. Were you thankful for that, though? No. And I'll tell you why. Any family is better than no family. Yeah. I mean, a dysfunctional family is better than no family. I miss my little sisters. They were four. 
and they were being put in an orphanage, and I hated that, and I didn't know who my uncle was. Is he going to do what my daddy did? He's his brother. I scared to death. I didn't know them, and I didn't know my mother, my grandmother, rather, anymore, because I hadn't seen her since I was a little kid. They came and they got me and they took me to Illinois. They bought me all new clothes. They bought me a new bike. They got me signed up to go to, to uh, swimming at the, at the Turner's pool. Uh, I met an old girl in the neighborhood. We delivered papers together. But it was about a month or two, and I was so depressed. I wanted to not live. I just wanted to not live. I didn't think anybody loved me, anybody cared. And why? Because they were doing everything for me. I mean, when I got up in the morning, my clothes were laid out for me, and they were beautiful, and they were nice, and I was going to school, and, and I had everything a young person would want. But I was depressed because of my sisters and my mom and my dad and everybody not being there no more. And It was just all new to me, and so I tried to kill myself. Uh, I took poison from my uncle's cabin, and I ingested it, and then I got very, very sick, and then I started being afraid I was going to die. So I started praying and asking God, who I did not know personally, to please, please don't let me die. And God, please give me somebody that loves me. Please, Lord. And I prayed, and I got better. I didn't die. Two weeks later, I got an invitation from a neighbor boy. He invited me to a Sunday school picnic. And I went in my short shorts and I went in my little t top and I uh, went to the Sunday school picnic. And uh, he was a very sweet, kind, gentle young man. And everybody there treated me kindly, and they were good to me. And then he invited me to Sunday school, and I went. Then he invited me to church at night, and I went. Then he invited me to Bible study, and I went. I'd gone any place he asked me to go because this guy was so cute. He had the most beautiful blue eyes that I've ever seen in my whole life. And he was as sweet as the day was long. Sounds and like kind. me. <laughs> He was Nothing wonderful. It could be more f further from the truth, Tony. <laughs> Thank you, Brian. Nothing could be further than the truth. And How I was 12 at this time, and he thought I was 16. And did, did you tell him you were 16? No, I did not. And I did not. We never talked about age, but he thought he told my friend that he thought I was 16. And so he kept inviting me. He never would hold my hand. He never would make any kind of advance. Uh, he just invited me to church, and I went, and I sat by him every time the doors were open because that's what he invited me to do. And we went, I went to church about six months, and then one night he held my hand, and it was the most sweet, wonderful thing I've ever had happen in my life. And then Valentine's Day came around, and he gave me a Bible and a heart-shaped box of candy. And we started being more than just church friends. And um, he kept telling me, because he found out how old I was, he kept telling me, you know I don't dance. You know I don't go to uh, places like you probably like to go to. Uh, you know, I don't go to theaters. I don't go to movies. Uh, I, you know, I, those are things I said, I don't care. I don't care. I don't care. So he tried to get rid of me, but I didn't let him. <laughs>
<laughs> and we dated and we dated, and it was so wonderful. I, uh, he's the sweetest, most wonderful gift that ever came my way. Well, he was, uh, he was, uh, he's five years older than I am and the most precious young man that I've ever had in my life. And um, when I was 14 and a half, uh, my grandmother, who was an alcoholic, but quit drinking, was on the wagon, went to a Baptist church, uh, she started drinking again. And I mean, Uncle Scott, my uncle would not allow her to have any kind of alcohol in the house, and he never did have alcohol in the house. But she would drink Listerine and get drunk. And she would drink anything that was alcohol at all and get drunk. And when I would come home from school, she'd be on the floor drunk. And uh, so Uncle Scott got a hold of my dad, who still hadn't come to see me, who still hadn't talked to me after being there two and a half years. Uh, called my dad, got a hold of him. Evidently he was in touch with my dad because my dad, my uncle knew who'd, how to get in touch with him and told him, you are going to have to come and get sued because mom's drinking again and it's not good. Well, Ronnie and I had been dating for two and a half years and we loved each other and we wanted to get married. So we thought if I got pregnant, they would have to let me, let us get married. So I got pregnant. And when we went to them to see if they would let us get married, not realizing they could have arrested Ronnie for uh, yeah. being a minor, uh, but they, uh, my dad allowed us to get married. He signed the papers, and his mom and dad signed the papers because we went and talked to the pastor and told him what had happened. And the pastor told Ronnie, you don't have to marry her, which shocked me. And I did not hear about until I was, oh, I guess 65 years old that he said that to Ronnie, that really bothered me. <laughs> I don't know why it bothered me so bad, but it really bothered me terribly badly that he told Ronnie he didn't have to marry me, but just because I was pregnant. But Ronnie said, what do you mean I don't have to marry her? I love her. I want to marry her. That's why we did this. And they, we got married in the pastor's front room and uh, were set down in the church. We couldn't testify. We couldn't work in the church. We couldn't do anything in the church. We, for a whole year, we sat and just went to church. And so I was a mom at the age of 15, and Ronnie was 20. Our next child came in uh, two years. Our next one came in two years. <laughs> and when I was 17 years old, I received the Holy Ghost. I was baptized in Jesus' name and was filled with the Holy Ghost in a way that changed my life completely. I mean, things I used to say, things I used to do, things I wanted, you know, the way I lived, changed completely. And nobody told me nothing. I just, my life changed. I wanted to do nothing else but please God. If it was pleasing to God, that's what I wanted to do. And right after that, my dad went and got my sisters out of the orphanage, took him to St. Louis in a little apartment, and then he would bring him over to my house in Fairview Heights uh, for weekends, and I would take him to church because he said they need to go to church. Well, one day they came over and they said, Daddy's hurting Karen. And I said, oh, no. You know, I was afraid of it. I was afraid he would start molesting them. And sure enough, I took her to the hospital. I was only 17 years old. 
and I took her to the hospital, and they said she had been raped. Uh, I they called the police. I stood behind them. I said, "Call the police. You know, whatever you got to do. I want my dad arrested. And, I want him put in Karen? jail." Pardon me. Who was Karen? Karen's my baby sister. Okay. There's yeah, one of the twins. They were seven years old at that time, mm-hmm. and are eight, about eight years old. And she t- came to me and told me that, that she was being hurt by my dad. And I knew what was happening. I knew what they meant. And I uh, took her to the hospital, had her examined. They said she had been raped. I had my dad arrested for statutory rape. He went to jail. They went to court. And you know that he got six months in jail. And he didn't go to jail because of statutory rape, but they found a gun in his possession when they arrested him. And that's what he went to jail for for six months. In the meantime, I had the girls. I kept the girls. I had my three babies. I had my sisters. They were both eight years old at that time. And I went to the state of Illinois, and I asked them to give me custody. I was 17. And I just had that kind of faith. I thought, they need to go to church. God can help them do anything. God can heal their bodies. God can heal their minds. God did it for me. God can do it for them. And that's what I was aiming for. My doctor, who delivered my babies, went to court with me and said I was a responsible person. My pastor went to court with me, told him I was very responsible. My husband was very responsible. And they gave Ronnie and I custody of those girls when I was 17 years old. And we were able to raise them until they went to Sharon graduated from high school and became a registered nurse. And my sister Karen ran away from home when she was 16 to go find her real mother in East St. Louis, and she became an alcoholic. But she is doing better today. She's doing better today. And um, so we were able to raise them. We've got a very good relationship with the girls. And um, we have a great relationship with Barbara, the oldest daughter, I mean the oldest girl. I still, I'm going to go see her tomorrow. Uh, And uh, we have a very good relationship. It's been very good. So through all of that pain and all that struggle, um, how would, how did your relationship with your parents end up? All right. My father, after he got out of jail, was angry at me. Very, How long was he in jail? Six months. Really? That's all. And he was very, very angry with me, but he still came over to see the girls. And um, he would come over all the time uh, on weekends and visit with the girls and visit with us, but he wouldn't talk to me a whole lot. I gave him presents on Father's Day. Uh, I tried to minister to him. I had to forgive him because if I didn't forgive him, I couldn't be forgiven. That's what the pastor said. And I forgave him. I just had to forgive him. I couldn't be forgiven of my sins if I didn't forgive him. So I ministered, I worked my whole life trying to show him that I loved him and that I forgave him. And I invited him to church. And I went to counseling after a while. I was about 32 years old before I went to counseling. But I, uh, they told me that I had to t- confront him. And I confronted him and he said, what are you talking about? I never did anything to you to hurt you. You never, what are you talking about? I never hurt you. And for him to deny that, because he changed my life. I couldn't trust anybody. I didn't want to be alone with anyone. You know, the man I trusted the most hurt me. And I, he, my self-esteem was so bad. I had no self-esteem. I didn't feel good about myself. 
whatever I did, I didn't feel was good enough. And um, I, you know, I for him to stand there and say that he never did anything to me was just overwhelming. That was a really hard time. That was a really hard time. When he did finally die, he died a terrible death of cancer. When he finally died, he, uh, he did get baptized in Jesus' name in a bathtub at his house. And I don't know if he received the Holy Ghost, but he did repent and he did get baptized in Jesus' name in his bathtub at his house. My sister, who is a registered nurse, baptized him. <laughs> and she cared for him until he died. And out of the five girls, she was the only one that never got molested. All five of us girls, got, uh, four of us, four out of the five got molested, but she never did get molested, and why, I don't know. I was his only real birth daughter, and I often wondered why was that. Uh, but I've never been bad, mad at her or anything. I'm glad she didn't get, you know, yeah. get hurt. But it's been a phenomenal life living for the Lord. So tell me about... Did you ever try to reconnect with your stepmother? Yes. She was welcome at my home at any time. She got married again to s- several men uh, and divorced, so, you know, and she, my sister, uh, my sister, my precious sister that was my best friend when I was growing up, she lives in, uh, over across the river, and um, she would come to visit her often, and I would often invite him to our house for dinner, and her and her husbands would sit there, and we would talk and converse, and I treated her with the highest respect and with the highest love that I could through Jesus. He gave me the ability to, to love her unconditionally, and um, she never did get uh, saved, but I treated her with respect and love. When did you first tell your husband about your story? That is a tough thing. That is really tough. Uh, he knew a little bit of it because he knew that he didn't want me to go back to my dad. My dad was trying to take me home. And so I had to tell him. I had to tell him that he sexually molested me from the time I was seven years old. And that um, he under, you know, he was so compassionate, so understanding, so kind and so loving. And he never was uh, upset about anything with me. He always was understanding that my dad did this to me. It was nothing about me. It happened to me. So yeah, when we were dating, I told him about about it because that was why I didn't want to go back with my dad. Hmm. So how, after you confronted him about um, the whole situation of you growing up and he denied it, how did you forgive him? Well, again, I prayed, (laughs) and I prayed, and I prayed, and I asked the Lord to help me. But it was after he died that I really, truly forgave him. I thought I had forgiven him. But when I went to—I had to go to counseling again. I got very, very depressed after he died. And I don't know if it was because I couldn't minister to him anymore, give him gifts, tell him—I loved him, tell him I'm, you know, all that, minister to him anymore. But I got very depressed, and I started going to a— uh, call for help had a free counseling service and one day they had us take a baseball bat and beat a pillow and tell that person why why did you hurt me the way you did why did you destroy my life the way you did how come you did this to me and I mean to tell you I about beat that pi- the feathers out of that pillow 
I mean, to tell you, I didn't realize I had that much anger built up inside of me. And when it all came out, I just cried and cried and cried. And then I realized, I went to his grave and I told him, I forgive you of everything you've done to me. You tried to take my life, but I've tried to make good out of everything you did to me. And I forgive you. All right, so we're going to bring Allison onto the podcast now. Brian, sorry about all that noise. Brian's actually moving away from the microphone. Yeah, we don't have a whole lot of space in our studio. <laughs> yeah. And so, Brian, what was it you wanted to ask Allison? I, I guess <laughs> get back up. Now that I've gotten away from the mic, I wanted to ask how this story of forgiveness from her grandmother has impacted her. Um, so when I was 14, we moved to Florida and my parents began to backslide and it took a huge toll on my life, um, because they no longer wanted me to live for God. And I felt called to ministry. I wanted to do stuff, you know, I wanted to still stay in church and man, it was hard to do so whenever I had parents who didn't want me to go to church on Sundays when they wanted family time or um, they didn't want me wearing skirts or having my hair long. They said it looked stringy and gross, you know. And so I had a lot of resentment towards my parents. And then my parents um, started to have affairs and took a toll on our family dynamic. And I say all this very tactfully because my parents are very loving parents and they always loved me. That never was an issue, but they just made my life very difficult to live for God. And if it wasn't for my grandma, who steadily prayed for me, who I always went to for advice, I can't tell you how many times I called her crying, saying, they won't let me do this, or I'm having issues with this, or, you know, she'd just tell me, get in your prayer closet and just give it to God, lay it at the altar. And um, whenever I found out about my mom's affair, I don't know why I took it so personal, but I remember taking it so personal, and it took so much out of our family, and there was always arguing, and it was just constant before they got divorced. Um, and I was so mad at her. I was so angry. I was angry with her because of the affair. I was angry with her for doing that to my dad. I was angry with her because um, how she treated me when it came to religion and my walk with God. And I was angry at my dad, too. And my grandma, I mean, she told me this story multiple times, even whenever I was younger, but she told me once again about how she forgave her dad and, you know, and all the stuff that he did. And it just kind of like, wow, come on, Allison. Like, if she can forgive the man that did all that to her, my silly little story of, you know, being treated the way I was treated, it doesn't even compare. It doesn't even come close to what I dealt with, the things that she dealt with. And she found forgiveness in her heart. I, the least I can do is find forgiveness and respect even for my family. And that was, it is, it's not easy to do. Like she said, it it took a lot of prayer. It took a lot of fasting and a lot of times in my prayer closet for me to find that forgiveness. But like I said, if it wasn't for my grandmother and for the Lord, I wouldn't have. So if it was for Allison's grandma. What about your sister's? Are, are they in church today? Yes, quite a few of them are, all but one. All, all because of you? Yeah, I guess. So um, you, you were the leadoff batter getting yeah, into right, church. Right, And so because you went through all of this, all of your past um, 
it developed into your family being saved, what would you tell somebody who's Allison right now that doesn't understand um, why they have to struggle so hard to live for God? What would you tell them? I would just tell them that our steps are ordered by the Lord, and everything that comes our way is ordered by God, whether it's good or whether it's bad. You have to realize that your everyday life is in God's hands, everything, good, bad. There's a lesson to be learned. There's a person to be touched. There's lives to be changed. There's things that come our way that we don't understand, but yet again, God orders our steps, and you can have faith that God will take you through it. I, my favorite scripture is the warrior scripture in Psalms 91. You'll see him fall on the left, you'll see him fall on the right, but it won't come nigh your house. You know, the Word of God is the most important tool that you can put into your life. Get into the Word of God and read it and study it and know that the Word is God speaking to you and through you and helping you and leading you and guiding you and giving you strength for today and hope for tomorrow. And that's what I would like to tell the young people or anybody that's going through something like that today. Lean upon the Lord, trust the Lord, have strength, know that he's got you and yet everything's gonna be all right. On the flip side of that, um, Brian, I'm sorry, you're over there without a mic right now. No, however y'all wanna do it right now. But um, I wanna ask you, whenever I was going, or listen, (laughs) <laughs> Once again, you hear you hear it again. Anyway, whenever I was going through, all of our listeners know, and I kind of told you uh, my little spell, and like just like Allison, um, my story is nothing compared to yours. And I have these little pity parties for myself, but my spiritual mentors, and I don't want to say you know they're not great people because without them, I, I don't know where I would be. Right. But they would say to me. Well, pray about it. What do you say to those people that pray about it and don't hear God? Don't feel anything from God? Hmm. Yeah, that's rough. Yeah. I don't know. I look at the past and I think about all that he's done. That's what I keep trying to remember is what he has done for me, where he has brought me from. If you could look to your past and see how God's kept his hand on you all through your life and how beautiful it's been. No, it's not always been easy, but you can see God's hand on everything in your life. I mean, everything in my life, God had his hand on it. And I've been through some more rough times that I can't, we don't have the time to go into. But I'm telling you, just just believe. Believe in God and trust him. Trust him that he loves you dearly and that you are his child, and he will never leave you nor forsake you. And I know sometimes it's rough. You can't. You pray and you pray and you pray, and you just have to trust the Lord that he's going to take care of it. That's all I can say. I, I, I don't know how else to say it. That's all I can do is trust the Lord daily. What would you say to the mother whose daughter is going through the things that Allison's mom went through? As the mom going through it all your granddaughter feels a certain way you as the mom how do you to a, to a mother out there whose child is going through a divorce how would you minister to them oh i would say be compassionate to that child 
And I hope the child can understand that life isn't always fair. It isn't always fair. And to the mother, oh, man, I don't know what to say. I mean, I'm sorry. I, I don't know what to say. I, I just know that sometimes it's meant to be. You know, people don't love each other anymore. They don't care for each other anymore. To be together is worse than being apart. And uh, the arguing and the fighting and all that, you know, uh, sometimes the best decision is to leave that partner and uh, try to better your life. But that's the thing, try to better your life, I would think, Mother. Uh, try to better your life and always keep your children, number one, and you know, God first. So we've, we've heard a lot about some of the tragedies that you've experienced in life, and we, yeah, we've touched on some of your great moments, but I want to ask you, in, in all of your life, what would you say is one of, or if not the, I mean, it may be a couple of things you have to touch on, but what has been the most beautiful thing in all of your life, the most wonderful moment that you've ever experienced? Okay, well, I believe that all this happened for a reason, honestly. I've, I've got a great empathetic spirit. I'm, I'm empathetic. I'm compassionate. I have a love for people. I have a love for young people. I can see their pain. I can see their their difficulties they're going through. And adults are young people. And I my ministry is giving and reaching and ministering to people that are hurting. And I can feel their hurt. And to me that is beautiful that I can relate to people that need help. And uh, my husband says I always give too much, but it's not, you know, you've got to do what the Lord leads you to do. When somebody's hurting, they need to be helped. And that is the most beautiful thing I can think of. It's the most beautiful gift that I have in my life is being able to minister to others. We've had foster children. Uh, we were foster parents. We have over 31 foster children in our house. We've got one that we adopted. Uh, you know, God has been so, so very good to us. He's blessed us immensely with love, compassion. Remember when I said I prayed, God, give me somebody to love me at 12 years old? 22 people in our family that are loving and, oh, we love each other. We get together every year at Thanksgiving or Christmas, and there's so much love and so much compassion. My family, that is something I'm so very, very grateful for. God answered that prayer of a 12-year-old girl that didn't want to live. So would you change anything? No, I would not. Through the pain, through the hurt, through the struggle, there's nothing you would change? No, there's not, because in everything I've gone through, I've learned to use it for God mm. and to try to use it in a ministry that would help others, and that's better than anything. So heartbreak and pain doesn't have to be the end of your story? No, sir. It can be the beginning of helping others and doing great things for the Lord. Mm. I absolutely believe that. What an answer. What an answer. So what I've learned tonight is your current situation can be a chapter and not the ending to your story. Absolutely. Brian, what did you learn in this uh, episode? You pretty much take the words out of my <laughs> mouth. That's, that's, that's the, what we heard is we heard a story that a lot of people out there, it's going to tug at heartstrings and may bring tears to your eyes of thinking, I can't believe somebody went through that. But the, the sad truth is, is someone did. And in fact, maybe even someone listening to this right now, you have too. 
And you've not only heard the the beginning of the story, but you've been able to see not the ending of the story because she's still with us. <laughs> but but you've you've heard this most recent additions to the story of where where we are. She is now where Sue is now, and you too, though your story may be very similar in the way it began, your story can also end up in a very similar way as well, which is a story of finding passion and peace and healing from the heartbreak and actually turning pain into a way to heal others. You know, it makes me think of a scripture that says by his stripes that were healed, that there's some healing that's only produced from the deepest of pains. And if you go through those pains, you too can help be a healing agent in someone's life. This has been The Crucial Conversation. Thank you.